You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Avrocha, I'm Avram Kivalevich. This is a Hespin and Harocha, Paragayin Atzadik, that was nostalgic from us two weeks ago, from Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, Zeyfet Tzadik, Kodesh with Rocha. We have the incredible schools uh, to have with us, uh, the Ambezdin of the Federated Synagogues of London and Manchester, Chevra uh, Kehivas B'nai Yisrael, Rav Fivel Zimmerman Shlita, who uh, was Maskim out of the blue, uh, but really for to speak for us and to give us a harocha and a hesped as he was close to the niftel. Um, Rav Shraga Fabel is, uh, is an American, but he's living in London. And I just am reminded by uh, the famous statement of uh, Bernard Shaw that said that English is a language that separates the United States and England, that they are two countries separated by a common language. And that indicates that for many people in the outside world, little differences make a big difference. The fact that you pronounce something one way and not in a different way sort of means you're somebody different. And I don't know if I can relate to you. I think part of the beauty of, of Klaustrol that has been shown in this period is that, yes, we might pronounce things different. We have different ways of giving COVID, different ways of dress, but there has been a tremendous achdus and understanding that, that we share in commonality. In fact, our differences make us stronger in some ways because we see the ability of Torah to be nispashet, Torah to be able to, to inhabit and be part of life differently, but essentially the same. And I think that we actually appreciate it. The Niftel, the Goyin HaTzadik, or Zalman Nechemia, was many, many things. But this aspect of looking at the essence and not caring, and not being Goyin Bachlal, the differences of how you dress, whether it's with a kippah struga or whether it's with a frock and a, and, and a big kippah, that he was going to be giving Torah because that was mislavish in so many different surahs. The fact that it was so different, if anything, indicated the strength of what that meant, of how Torah was so important and so paramount. So, of all of us, I want to thank again Rav, Rav, Rav Zimmerman for taking time out of his very busy schedule to be able to give us a Haroch of Hesped and an understanding of what it is that we have lost. So I'm now going to, uh, uh, Rav Simmerman, I'm going to, uh, uh, please, if you could begin, and I'm going to mute myself, and I, I hope others are also going to mute themselves so we will be able to hear Rav Zimmerman uh, without any uh, hafra. Novi Amos writes, when he's prophesizing about the Petira of Yeshio Melch Yehuda, and he says, When that day comes, The sun will set at midday. 
And of course, we know that the Shio Melch Yehuda died at a very young age, and therefore it was like the sun setting at midday. However, when you look in the Gemara, the Gemara says this about Rabbi Yechanan, who was an elderly person also, and it says, nevertheless, what does that mean? And the answer is that Shemesh Bitzrayim means when the sun is burning the brightest, burning the strongest, when the sun is most productive. There are people, in spite of their advanced age, they're nevertheless totally productive and at the heights of their productivity. So too was the great Nifta, Abzalman Nechemya, was a person, although he was advanced in age, 88, 89 years old, who was in the middle of his, his, his work, in the middle of his avidah, middle of his productivity. And therefore, when such a person is nifter, you say, the sun has set at midday. An alternate shot can be as follows. When the sun sets at the end of the day, it, the sun goes down in the west and goes down. We don't have the sun. But we know that is the Seder Eilam, and the sun will rise again the next morning. However, if the sun sets at midday, there's a fear that there'll never be a sun again. So too there are times when great Tamid HaChacham and Tzadikim are nifter, and sometimes one has a doubt whether there'll ever again be someone else with that level of knowledge. And when that is so, we call it Bevesi Shemesh Betzarayim. The sun has set in the middle of the day. We don't know whether there will ever again be such a Talmud Chachm. And the Pasuk continues, Your holidays will turn into days of mourning. And all your songs will be dirges. And the Ptira of a Tzadik is like an evil yachid. And what the Pasuk is telling us is, it's an individual mourning. Don't look at it as a tzara sarabim. Sometimes tzara sarabim chatsi nechama. You have to look at it, that each individual lost this connection. And therefore it's an evil yachid. It's a personal loss. We have to take the loss personally. Rashi says a different track, like a father who loses an only child. Anytime a father, Vayelenu, loses a child, it's painful. The person never forgets it. But if they have many children, at least they have a consolation in the other children. There are times where a person loses their ben yachid and they're inconsolable. When a Talmud Chacham dies, we have to know that every Talmud Chacham is unique. You can't just merely say that this Talmud Chacham died, but we have many more. Each one is like a ben yachid. Each one is unique. Each one has their own individual greatness. And therefore, we mourn like the loss of an only son. There's another possibility. There are times when people are nifter and they're far greater than us. Not just as a matter of degree,
but qualitatively they're in a totally different league. And the truth is, when that happens, we cannot truly mourn the loss because we don't understand the loss. We can only mourn our personal loss, our connection, what the loss means to us. And therefore, it's the samtia ke'evel yachid. It's an individual loss. What I'm going to describe today is the individual loss that I, other Rabbanim and Dayanim, feel. I'm not on the level to understand and truly appreciate of Zalman Nechemia's greatness. But I can tell you what we have lost, the mourning that we feel. Of Zalman Nechemia, you can give him, easily give him the title, deserve a title of Sar HaTayra. He was the master of all of Torah. When he was still a Bachar, he was accepted to Panovich. And the Panovich Rav had him. The Panovich Rav said, this is a Bachar that, that knows all of Shas. He said, in my life, I've met Bachram that have learned Shas. I never met a Bachar that knows Shas. He's a Bachar that knows Shas. This was still before he was married. Let's go on to Shulchanan Aruch. Ben Sien Abba Shaul, great Svardegon, said that Abzal Nechemia is a person who can give a complete share on every line of Shulchan Aruch. You can give a whole share on every line of Shulchan Aruch. We're talking about a tremendous shlita, a tremendous command of both Shas and Shulchan Aruch. His son-in-law said in a Hesped that he once asked him, everyone knows he was tremendously a Baki in Ksay Sachayshin. He said, how many times did you learn Ksay Sachayshin? Anyone who knew, Zalman knows he's not going to answer the question. And he wouldn't mention such things. And finally, his son-in-law said, I, I bugged him, tell me how many times. So he said, I don't know, I don't remember. So he said, Be'erach. And he told us, this is what his son-in-law said. He answered him, Alfei Pa'amim, thousands of times. It's not merely Ksay which is a classic Sefer. There are Achreinim that he knew. Shuvas Achiezer, he knew inside out to the degree that he was able to pass in a difficult shaila from a diok in a line in the Achiezer. Since the Achiezer phrased it this way, one way, and not the other way, it's proof to a certain thing. That was the command he had of Achiezer. He had a similar command on the writings of Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khanan. Yitzhak Al-Khanan Spectre, he knew all of Nachal Yitzhak, Ein Yitzhak. These are very difficult forum. They're only the province of great scholars. And he knew it inside out. It's well known that he enjoyed the writings of Chedush Rim, especially on Cheshem Mishpat. He was the editor of Encyclopedia Talmudis. However, the truth is, at a deeper level, he was an Encyclopedia Talmudis. As someone phrased it to me, he was a walking Eitzer HaChachma. He was also an Ish Ashkailis, an Ish HaKil boy. You know, today we divide Talmud HaChachamim into different groups. There are those that are Magide Shir, who know how to say a Shir. There are those who, who are Paiskim, who answer Shailas. There are those who are Dayanim, who can sit on Dine Torah. There are those who are Bikiim, have a lot of knowledge. There are those are people who know Drush. Very rarely do you find a person 
was Isha Koyal Boy. He was a master magachir. Anyone who ever heard him said that she was astounded by the clarity of his of his shiurim. At the same time, he was a paisik of difficult halachas. At the same time, he was a dayan. He would sit at a case and be able to to um, to get at the truth of the matter. He had tremendous knowledge. And the knowledge wasn't only merely halachic or Talmudic knowledge, but he had knowledge of all matters, of drush. I once had someone in my shul, in Bansi, and he came over to me and said, he's researching, I would like to know, where do you find the Be'era Shal Miriam? Where, where can you find Miriam's well? And he asked me, expected the Rav to know such a thing. I said, listen, I have no idea where Be'era Shemelium is. It's probably in the Kinneret somewhere, but we, I cannot tell you. But you should know there's a man in Yerushalayim who tell you exactly where it is. And he took me up on the challenge and he went into Abzalman and Nechemiah's, walked in off the street without any, you know, any akdama, without any introduction, and said, by the way, could you tell me where the Be'era Shemelium could be found? And Abzal al said, sit down. And he gave him a half-hour lecture on the spot, without any preparation, on all the opinions of where Be'erish al-Miriam could be found. He used to say shurim, tens of shurim a day. Why did he say so many shurim? The answer is he never said no to anyone. Anyone who asked him to say a shir, he would say a shir. He just couldn't, he didn't say no. And he said it to all groups, to all segments of Klal Yisrael. A Dayan told me he was learning in the Dayanus Kailo in Eretz Yisrael, a very advanced Kailo. And they asked Abzal and Chemi, could you come say a share? We're learning Chesha Mishpat Simen Kuf Tzadi Aleph. So he came in and he started saying, you know, Sudah Shrerek says, there's a difficult says, Kuf Tzadi Aleph. And he started talking. And he saw that the, the students were vacant, and these were very advanced Tamidah Chachamim. Till one of them said, Rav Goldberg, we're not learning Kuf Tzadi Aleph, we're learning Reis Tzadi Aleph. So he said, I ah, we're learning Reis Tzadi Aleph. Well, everyone knows in Reis Tzadi Aleph there's a very difficult Nesiba Samishpat. And he gave a shir on the spot for an hour to very advanced Tamidah Chachamim on something he didn't prepare of, prepare on, and the series of Mishpat and Reish Tzadi Aleph. After the shir, everybody was in spoil. Everyone was dumbfounded. What a gone, what a genius. He could say a shir unprepared on Chayish Mishpat Reish Tzadi Aleph. And someone mentioned it to him. And he felt very uncomfortable. He was a very humble person. He felt very, very uncomfortable about it. And he, you know, he wanted to belittle his accomplishment and he said, no, big deal. It's only, it, it, it's Chayish Mishpat. I happen to know Chayish Mishpat. He said, no, Chayish Mishpat is the most difficult part of Shulchan Aruch, and only the most advanced Tamid HaChachamim know it at all. And by him, if it's Chayish Mishpat, what's the big deal? He had a tremendous clarity. Anyone ever heard him say a shir or spoke to him? He was able to repeat every shita. He could organize it as if he had been working on it for a long time and organized every opinion on 
in the matter. How was he zayichet to this? How was how did he merit such clarity and learning? Now you should know he had phenomenal abilities, tremendous intellectual abilities, and therefore, as such, there's really seemingly not much we can learn from him. However, he himself used to say when someone would comment on his memory, he would say that that doesn't come from abilities. Tfisa, the ability to grasp something quickly, that comes from abilities. Memory is from Chazara, Chazara, Chazara. Review, review, and review. And he used to review things all the time, and he used to attribute his memory, his knowledge, to review. And that's something we can learn from him. Not everyone is blessed those type of abilities to grasp things so quickly. But we can all review what we know. And another thing we can learn from him is his tremendous humility with a true honor. Whenever he spoke to people, he spoke to them as an equal. No matter who he was talking to, he addressed them and, and, and dealt with the person as if that person was an equal. Until he was 87 years old, a year, a year and a half ago, he refused to accept a ride from anyone. He would travel everywhere by bus. And when asked, why don't you, why are you going on a bus? He said, I'm a regular person. I'm not a special person that people drive. I'm not a Rebbe. I'm a regular person. A regular person goes on a bus. Only in the last year, when he started not feeling well, did he accept the ride a lift from someone. In America, you call it a ride. In England, you call it a lift. That's the common language. He never walked to the Mizrach. Whenever he came into a simcha, he would refuse to sit up front at the head table. The only exception is when he would marry off a grandchild, he would go sit up front. Because he says, every Zayd sits up front. So I'm also a grandfather. But at a time when it was the Talmud HaChaman sitting up front, he would just refuse to sit up front. Even when he sat, wherever he sat, he was very afraid people would stand up for him. Whenever he used to walk into a shul or a base medrash, he would quickly run to his seat so people shouldn't have notice him and have the time to stand up for him. Even in a very advanced age, he wanted to make Kiddush, but the Becher... The case wasn't clean and with great difficulty walked to the sink to wash it off. And one of his grandchildren asked, you know, Saba, why didn't you ask me to wash it for you? And he looked at him. I, a simple person, would be matriach, someone, a yeshiva bachar, to wash out a becher for me. I'm a simple person. He once went to the Rambam's grave grave in Tveria. He was not one of these people who go around davening, wasn't a grave hopper, and then go around to graves to daven. But once he heard there was a trip to Tveria to the cover of the Rambam, and he wanted to go along. When he got to the cover of the Rambam, he gathered everyone together and said, do we have a minion here? I want to ask Mechila, forgiveness from the Rambam. Because once I asked the question on the Rambam, and I expressed myself in a way that lacked respect for the Rambam. 
you know, he spent his whole life explaining Rambams. And Bechal, anyone who's, who learns, as a kash on the Rambam, a steer in the Rambam, but he felt he has to go to the Rambam's grave to ask Mechila. There's tremendous anova in him. He distanced himself tremendously from taking money, which is not his, that he didn't earn. He was always worried, maybe this money doesn't come to me. Tell a story that someone came in and presented him with a set of sermon that he published. He paid for the publishing. And he asked the person, how do you know me? Who am I? Who, how do you know me? He says, you don't know? 13 years ago, you presided over my geras. You presided over my conversion. And I feel how karas to you. So I want to, I want to give you a set of sorrow. He started screaming, shaychad, shaychad, bribery, bribery. Now it's true that a, a geras needs a bezden. But it's not the type of bezden that you can bribe. And certainly not 13 years later. However, he had such a fear of bribery, he refused to accept this forum. When I mentioned my aforementioned congregant who wanted to know where the Be'erish of Miriam is, and he went into him, and he spoke to him for a half hour, and on the way out, his congregant was doing very, very well in business, Baruch Hashem. And he asked him, you know, can I, um, you know, can I make a donation to one of your masters? One of your, you, you know, one of your organizations. So he looked at him, Zalman Lechem, he looked at him and says, I don't have any maestas. I teach wherever people ask me to teach. So he said, maybe I could help you. Can I give you a check for your expenses? He looked at him and said, I worked my whole life. I have a pension and I, I, I can manage. I don't need, I don't need any money. So the person asks, so why did you spend a half hour with me? He's used to people accepting donations. He said, what do you mean? A yid comes in and wants to know where the Be'er of Miriam is? How can I not have a discussion with it? I enjoyed the discussion as much as you did. To the person who distanced himself from money. To the person who had no cutness in him. No small-mindedness. He was just a big person. His brother-in-law, Rabbi Israel Arbach, son of Klemizalan Arbach, the son-in-law of Rabbi Yashiv, said at the end of his shiva that the Chazanish once said, who is the most fortunate person in the world? He said, the most fortunate person in the world is someone who can leave this world and say, I never insulted anyone, I never hurt the person. And Rabbi Israel Arbach said, the only person I can think to say this about was my brother-in-law, Zalman Nechemiah. He was a person who was totally apolitical, didn't align himself with any faction, and therefore he was known just by Torah alone. If you want to describe him, all you could say is, is Torah. These are all things that we can emulate. I don't think we can emulate his abilities, but reviewing humility, distancing ourselves from unearned money, not to be a small-minded person, not to get caught up in factional politics, 
is something that we all could do. How did he pass in the Shiloh? Well, when he spoke publicly, he gave a share. And he laid out all the opinions on the matter. When he spoke to Rabbanim, to other Rabbanim and other Dayanim, he only, he gave an answer by saying the first source in which this is found. And not only that, he had an expectation of others that you should know its original source. I remember once I sat by a dentera that he was conducting, and he asked me afterwards, how would you have paskened? So I said, I would have paskened this way. And he said, why? I said, it's a shach. It's a, it's a beferish shach. Shach is a commentator on Pesha Mishpat. So he looked at me and he said, a shach? It's a Namuki Yosef in Baba Kama. I went home. I was sure it was a shach. And in fact, I looked it up. And lo and behold, the shach quotes a Namuki Yosef in Baba Kama. What did he want? He wanted you should know the first source. Don't quote a shach if the shach is quoting in Namuki Yosef. We're expected to know its original source. I would like to go through a few of his psakim. This is just a tipa minayam, a drop in the a drop in the ocean of his Torah, which can be found. And the truth is, many of these psakim will be out of context because there are greater context to the question, and therefore you shouldn't use them alachalamaisa. We're just trying to give you a thought process. He once mentioned to someone, you know, all our mothers and grandmothers on Friday night. Our fathers, our grandfathers used to make hamaytzi, lecha mishnah, and then give out the challah. And our mothers used to make their own hamaytzi. Our daughters, they yaitza with the balabais. Why is it that our mothers made their own brachas and our daughters don't? And the person told them, it's probably ignorance. Although, in fact, there is a Mate Ephraim who says that's the correct thing to do. But it was probably ignorance. And the truth is, that's probably what it was. However, he always liked to explain what people did and be Malamet's chus. He said, no, 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 it wasn't ignorance. If you'll look in the Mishnah Brura, in Simon Kuft's Sadi Gimel, you'll find that the Mishnah Brura, the Chavetz Chaim, has a shaila whether you can have Shemea Ka'ina when you don't understand the language. Even if it's Lashon Kaitish. It's a Suffolk. He said, our mothers, our grandmothers, they didn't know Lashon Kaitish. They didn't benefit from a Jewish education. And therefore, they used to make the bracha themselves because they were chayshish for the, for the Suffolk of the Mishnah Brura. Our daughters all have Jewish Today we're fortunate we have a Jewish education, so they do understand Lashem Kaidish, and therefore they yaitze with Shemea Ka'ina. And therefore he said, what, it's not ignorance. They were being machmer for the Shita in the Mishnah Bura. Once had a very difficult question. A woman was expecting a child. All the ultrasounds showed that this will have major birth birth defects, 
and probably 70 to 75 percent, it wouldn't, wouldn't even be a live birth, it would be a stillborn. This woman became very depressed from the, from the um, situation and had a shyla about can one, do, can one do an abortion? And the nub of the question is, is it Pekor She was very depressed and there was a possibility of suicide, a low possibility, but a possibility of committing suicide. And the question is, what type of pikuach nefesh is necessary to perform an abortion? Again, this is all out of context. Is it a small amount? Because the laws of pikuach nefesh is even a small level. Or, since the Rambam says that you can abort a, a, a fetus because of reidif, the person has to be a real reidif. When asked, Zalman Nechemia was asked, he said, I don't understand the question. You're telling me that 75% the child will never be born. And therefore, there's no pekuach nefesh. So he was asked, but ain't holchem bepekuach nefesh when it comes to pekuach nefesh, we don't follow rave. Even there's a distant possibility of saving a life, we save a life. And he answered on the spot, that that's after you're born and you're alive and you're a person, now there's a question, will the person die? But here the question is, is the person a person in the first place? Because a non-viable child or fetus is not a person. There there's no halach of in halachim b'pekoach nefesh achar ha'rayv. Rayv says that it's not a person. Now the truth is you can look it up and you'll see there's a shayla is based on or not. However, that was the way he looked at it. He wrote one of the vexing question, contemporary questions are in surrogate pregnancy. A woman conceives a child and then it's implanted into a different woman. Who is the mother? Is it the conception mother or the birth mother? And the truth is, it's seemingly, this is something which is unknowable. It's very hard to find any sources for it. And Revel Yashav himself writes, Tzarechian. I don't know. Abzalman Nechemia wrote on it, and this will show you his thought process, not so much the Psak. And he said, question number one is, a regular mother, a couple gets married, receive a child, they have a child. When does the mother become a mother? When do you become a mother? When you conceive a child or when you give birth to a child? Where would, where would you seek this, the answer to this question? He said, this question is a machlekes of Kiva Ega and Rashi. Where are these sources? Israel. Abakiva Eger in Hilchas Basavachalov. And he has a question we know in Hilchas Basavachalov, Yinala cook meat with milk. And it says in Simon Pezayan, Sivav, that Cholov Shchuta, if you find milk in a dead animal after Shchita, the Cholov Shchuta is not Asa Medirais and Basa. Because it says, 
So we have a myth that someone who can't, an animal who can't be a mother, its cholov is not cholov deraisa. Now, Kiregen Simon Pezayin Sivov has a shaila. What about cholov treifa? A, a treifa cannot give birth, but a treifa can conceive. Is that called cholov deraisa? And he brings a proof that it's called cholov deraisa. He said, so you see, it's a, it's a, a Kiwaega that says that you become a mother at conception, not at birth. That's a Kiwaega. I don't know how many people learn Basavachalov and can deduce from there a question about surrogate pregnancy. But then he said, you should know something that that's a Kiwaega, but Rashi says not like that. Now, where would you find the Rashi that talks about when you become a mother? They said it's a Rashi in Megillah about Esther Amalka. In Megillah's Esther, it says, Mordechai adopted Adasa, raised Adasa. He asked about Stoidai, She doesn't have parents. And the Gemara asks, it says already she doesn't have parents. Why did it say Bumais Aviya Vima? So the Gemara in Megillah says after Gimelam and Aleph says that her father died right after her conception and her mother died in birth. If you look in Rashi in Megillah Dafya Gimel, Rashi says Kishiyolda Ima Mesa and she never became a mother. So she died in childbirth. The Rashi says very clearly that you become a mother during childbirth. So you want to know when does a mother become a mother? A mother becomes a mother, if Kyuega says at conception, and and um, Rashi says at birth. He said himself, that if you ask me, it's a Gemara. There's a Gemara in Yavamist of Tzadi Zayin Amit Beis. It says you have two brothers that are twins, that are Geirim. The Gemara says they're not related. There's no Chalitza, no Yibum. What about They were conceived when the mother was not Jewish. Then the mother was Neskaya, and the birth took place with Dusha. So the Gemara says, They're considered related to each other because they are considered brothers from the mother, even though when they were conceived, they were not Jewish. And he said, what you see from this Gemara is that you become a mother at birth. And therefore he says, if you want to know if one woman conceives the child, and the other woman gives birth to the child, the mother is the one who gives birth. So he went further. So what happens if the conception mother is not Jewish, and the birth mother is Jewish? Is the child Jewish? So he said, that's a different question. I just answered to you, who's the mother, and who is he, who's the child related to? But now you have a different question. Even if you, a mother becomes a mother at birth, when does a child become a child? That's a different question. Where does it say this question? 
He says, that's also a Gemara in Yavamas. The Gemara says that Muberes Shenizkaira, you have a non-Jewish woman who's pregnant, who does a Geras, and she, and she does a Tefillah. The Gemara says, Nizkaira Bena Ima. The fetus also becomes Jewish. And the Gemara explains, the Gemara asks, if you hold Uber Yerech Imai, that a, a fetus is just a part of the mother, then goes along with the mother. But if you hold Uber Lav Yerech Imai, so where is the Tefillah on the Uber? It's a separate entity. It's a separate person. And the Gemara says, you can still do the Tefillah inside the mother, because Hainu Ravisei, the way the child lived, it's by the mother, and therefore it's not a chatzitza. He says it's often the Gemara. The Gemara says if you hold ube yerech imai, a child only becomes a person at birth. If you hold ube lav yerech imai, the child is a child already from conception. And the child is not Jewish, although the mother only becomes a mother at birth. So what you have to divide is yuchus, which means relation, to being Jewish. And therefore he said that if we hold as the Rambam holds, so it's possible that a child which was conceived by one mother was not Jewish, was then gave birth a surrogate mother who is surrogate woman who is Jewish gave birth. He's related to his Jewish mother, but he still needs a Geras. He wrote out a list for Dayanim. You should know when you go to a Din Torah, you have a choice of Din or Pshara. You want pure Din, pure judgment, or do you want a Pshara? You want a compromise. And we're supposed to encourage people to accept a compromise. However, many people don't want to accept the compromise because the Tevea, the claimant, feels I'm, I can only lose from my compromise. And in general, he's very bothered by this idea that people think that a compromise means you just split the difference. He wrote a letter to Dayanan that this is not called a compromise. That's called Hamas. It's called stealing. If someone is owed money, someone's owed $100, and you say, okay, split it 50-50, that's not called a compromise. That's called stealing from a person. So then what is a compromise? And he had some novel thoughts on it. He said as follows. We know there's a, there's a rule, grama ben Azakan is potter. If you call you cause damage to someone, you are part of Bedine Adam. You're not obligated to pay. But Bedine Shamayim Yerchayev. So he postulated that if the Din Torah is, accepts Pshara, then they can obligate someone on Brahma bin Azakim. And he explained it as follows. If someone is Chayev Bedine Shamayim, then the nitva, the defendant, is not obligated to be Michael the person until he, until he compensates him. And therefore, 
a pshara is to cause the defendant to be meichel, the claimant. Now, even though normally in cases of of hezek, you don't have to ask mechila, that's because you're compensating the nizik, the person who was damaged, for his damages. But if you're not compensating because you're not chayev bedine adam, so the, the nizik doesn't have to be meichel the mazik. Therefore, it's a pshara to, to cause people to forgive each other. And therefore, although grama ben is potter, but if that's if it's a pure din But if it's a pshara, then you can be machayev a grama ben azafin. gave other examples. Sometimes if you put down a cash deposit, but you didn't take possession yet, and pure then you could back out of the deal, just as a, what's called a Misha Para, a curse, a Misha, Misha Para. And he said, but however, when you have a din which is a Pshara, you can make someone pay up, even if you only put down money. So too, if something is unethical, although the person has is not obligated, a Pshara can make a person so too, how certain halachas that a bezdin cannot judge today, baishas and the like, which a bezdin can judge, that's in pure din, but not when it is a pshar. And basically what he did in this letter to Dayanim, which not everyone follows it strictly, but every bezdin takes into account that Pshara also has rules. There are rules to making a compromise. A compromise does not mean splitting the difference. A compromise means finding what is ethically correct and to, to restore peace. And then he a- ends off his letter with saying, usually a claimant refuses, I don't want to do a Pshara. I'm right. And I don't want to do a pshara. I don't want to do a compromise. And the Shulchan Aruch says you should encourage him to do a compromise. He said they're making a mistake. There are many times a claimant cannot sustain their claim for technical reasons. Rama bin Azakan is potter. It's only a mishapara. A person could say kimli. And I could say kimli. But when a case is a pshara, then you're allowed to. And therefore, a pshara benefits everyone, provided that a pshara, a compromise, is what strictly means a pshara, not just divvying up. The differences. The Gemara, we'll take another case. The Gemara in the Mishnah and Kedushan says, someone's a mamzer. Now, if a mamzer, his children are going to be mamzerim. Rav Tarfin says, You can take away the stain of mamzeris. What happens? A mamzer marries a shifcha, a slave. Shifcha knanis. The child becomes an evid. Then you free the evid. And then the child becomes a ger and no longer a mamzer. The question is, is this applicable in the modern times? 
First of all, you can't go and buy a slave. No one's gonna no one's gonna agree to become your slave. More so, slavery is illegal in most countries in the world. And if you make a purchase which is illegal, it's not valid. And therefore, in fact, in Chuvas Minchas Yitzchak, he says that it's impossible to do this today because slavery is illegal. When Abzalman Nechemi was asked about it, he said, I have a solution. The Gemara is well known as a machlaikis, hamafke avdai. What happens if you have a slave and you say that he is hefker, he's ownerless? So there's a machlaikis, yatsalacheris or lo yatsalacheris? Does the slave become free if you are mafkeret, you render it ownerless? The psakaloch is, hamafke avdai yatsalacheris. He's free. But with Tzorach get he needs the document to make him free. And he said, what's the explanation in this Gemara? If he's free, what does he need a Shtar Shechra? And if he needs a Shtar Shechra, he's not free. And he explained, and this is commonly understood in all yeshivas, that in a slave there are two kinyanim, there are two forms of ownership, a kinyan mamen and a kinyan iser. There's the financial ownership, the commercial ownership, and a halachic ownership. When you're mafker and evid, you forego and forfeit the, the financial ownership. But you don't forfeit the halachic ownership. And therefore, a mafker avda yatzlacheres, he doesn't have to work for the owner, but the tzarech getshech. Now he said as follows, which kinyan, kinyan mamun or kinyan iser, is necessary to be Matayar Amamzer, that's the Kenyan Isser, not the Kenyan Mamet. Which Kenyan is illegal in international law is the Kenyan Mamet. So he says, imagine you would buy a slave on the condition that I free you immediately after I buy you. Would that be illegal? And the answer is no, because the person wouldn't have to work because there wouldn't be a Kenyan moment. But at the same time, there'd still be a Kenyan Isser, which would be Mata the Mamzer, and therefore there is a way of doing it in the modern era. I just, he had many, many chuvas on intellectual property. His tremendous ability was to take contemporary issues which to us, seemingly, you cannot find any sources in the Torah. And he would say, what do you mean there's no source in the Torah? The Torah encompasses everything in this world. And the Torah has the answer to everything. You just have to be, be able to identify the crux of the question and then make a comparison to something that already exists. And if you'll read through his writings, that is the common that's the common thread. The brilliance is not in the volume of knowledge, but the ability to, cruc- to get to the crux of the issue and then find the source in Torah, in Halacha, where this issue was discussed already. Just gave you a few examples. It's just, just a drop in the bucket of how you approach things. And such a tzaddik is nifter, such a Talmud Chacham is nifter. It's our avayda 
continue in his footsteps. Like I said, we might not have his abilities, but we can continue in his ways. First and foremost, how we makeable call other to save upon him the office. To be accepting of every person, to have tremendous simcha when you meet another Jew, regardless of what type of Jew. His tremendous anava, his humility. Who am I? I'm just a regular person. And not just to say it, but to act like that. Next is his review. Whatever we know, we can review. And if you review things, then you truly know them. And then you attain clarity. And above all, his true belief that the Torah has the solution to every issue and every problem that confronts humanity. You just have to learn it and to be able to identify it. Wish everyone a and after a very difficult year, wish everyone refuas Yeshua's Nachamas and Tafshin Pei Aleph should be a Shna school of Yeshua. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.